Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. This is episode 29 of the Raw Ag Podcast. My guest is Matt Walcott. Matt is a research scientist at the Animal Genetics and Breeding Unit at the University of New England. In this episode, we are talking about cow cost and breed plan in general. Welcome to the Raw Ag Podcast, Matt. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. And where are we about to you at the moment? So I'm, I'm still locked in my, in my office in Armadale. Um, and I've, yeah, I'm based with, with AGBU, the Animal Genetics and Breeding Unit, um, and have have been here for, you know, since 2004. Yeah. Uh, involved in uh, beef cattle genetics research. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you, um, where you got your interest from, and I know that you've um, done lots and lots of, well, you're quite academic, but you've done lots of practical courses and things in you know, carcass um, assessment and all sorts of things. Tell us where you've come yep. from. So, yeah, I had a fairly unusual kind of track to, to academia. Um, I I grew up in, in northern Queensland. Uh, my parents owned a sheep property in, in Richmond, out right between towns on Mount Isa. Um, and, you know, one of the few moments of wisdom in, in those days for me was the observation that, you know, these people that were working in agricultural science, agricultural research, you know, it was a good group of people and I really liked the looks of what they were doing. So I kind of finished up boarding school in Charters Towers, went to university at, at Gatton in Queensland and came out with a, an animal science degree. Um, and then started started working with CSIRO in Brisbane in the meat research labs with with Drew Ferguson, whose name will probably come up again later in the, the discussion. Um, but as luck would have it, Drew got seconded into the, the beef CRC when it first started in 94 and was, was good enough to take me with him. So I kind of was involved from the, the very beginning of the beef CRC and started work on a research project looking at applying ultrasound scanning to live animal assessment. Uh, and we kind of kicked off that whole scanning application for, for cattle, which now forms such a, a central part of the, the breed plan evaluation. <clears throat> and for me, really, it was just following those numbers up the hill um, to, to Agbu. Uh, so that's, you know, that's where those that raw data got turned into something that, that breeders could really use in the form of EBVs. And I, you know, was fortunate enough to to get, get a job here working under David Johnson. Um, I did my, my PhD with him, which finished up fairly recently in, in 2013. And I've since kind of been involved in research looking at various aspects of productivity uh, a lot focused on northern australia and the 
genetics or reproduction up there. But since certainly working, you know, more focused on on southern breeds, uh, looking at those reproduction traits again and expanding that to look at how cows are able to maintain themselves through that annual reproductive cycle. And that's kind of central yeah. to my So, my so you're probably biased, but is reproduction the most important trait? I, I think reproduction is the most important trait. Um, so without a, without a, without a um, pregnancy test result positively, um, it's a waste of time holding the cow for a year, isn't it? Correct. Yep, yep. No, once... When things are going well with reproduction, it, it tends not to get too much focus. But the, the minute things start to go wrong, you know, you've created a very long track for yourself back to... Yeah, essentially back to profitability. Once your calving rates start going down, it really does impact productivity. And it's not just calving rate, is it? It's um, the speed in which they get in calf and the interval between, you know, making sure they're well inside that 12-month interval. Absolutely. And I, I think that's particularly the case. Well, it's a case everywhere, but certainly in southern Australia where there is you know, so much focus on reducing mating periods for, for people that are naturally mating to allow all the you know the management that can go along with that. I think it's particularly important that females are able to conceive early in that mating mating phase. So um, you know recently uh, well there's some work done out at Adelaide Union um, on um, a bit of work came out about fat and Fertility and the relationship between fat and fertility, and they got a small um, effect between fat and fertility in heifers, um, and, but it didn't sort of go on into cows. There's been a lot of um, commercial cattle producers recently in southern Australia chasing fat as a proxy to fertility. What do you what do you think about that? I think all all the work we've done looking at the genetics or reproduction has really taught us that if you want to improve reproduction genetically in your herd the most important thing to look at is reproduction um, as you said that that work which was conducted as part of crc2 that just um, sounds like a no-brainer to me matt it absolutely is um i i think we yeah we we understand that there are some relationships of of other traits with reproduction none of them are particularly strong uh, and if you if you want to achieve, well, just understanding of the genetics of your herd or breed for this you know, really complex trait, then we have to record that trait. And it's it's got to be very present in the evaluation. And I think that's the case whether people want to you know, really strive to improve it or if they just want to be able to monitor it as they apply selection pressure in, you know, in other important directions. But taking your eye off the reproduction ball can be a really costly mistake. So genetics has a component in reproduction and the environment obviously does as well. I mean, we as beef producers know that if you mismanage up to joining, you don't get as good a result. Um, so there's a component that's genetic and a component that's environmental, which makes up the animal's uh, phenotypic result. Um, what part is genetic and which part's environmental um 
it really depends on which or which nature versus nurture which you hear which has sort of come yep. out of a different medium isn't it you know but you hear that quite yes. a bit now people refer to nature nurture rather than genetics or environment yes and i you know i very much prefer to talk in terms of what's what's driven by your genotype and what's a function of you know where you've been raised and where you're where you're living um and as i said it in the reproduction area, it depends on which trait we're talking about. Certainly the the one that's most commonly applied for, for beef cattle is, is days to calving. Um, and we know that days to calving is, is not the most heritable trait in our evaluation. And heritability just describes the, the proportion of the observed variation which we are able to, to attribute to genetics. Uh, and I think there tends to be a perception that that your capacity to achieve genetic progress for lowly heritable traits is you know, is inherently low, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, the other really important number in there is how much genetic variation there is, and we know that for days to calving, despite it having low heritability, genetic variation. Yeah, even in Angus Angus cattle, is in the range of kind of twenty to forty days, um, depending on on how it's been been evaluated, uh, and that is is significant. You know, particularly when it's, we're talking about mating periods, you know, of six to twelve weeks. That twenty to forty days can be the difference between success and and a lack of that. So, certainly, plenty of opportunity to successfully apply selection for days to calving because of the amount of genetic variation for the trait. Matt, um, genetic variation. So the the amount of genetic variation that um, we see across species is huge. And you've been, work, you've been working in the north where uh, I suppose this, this was so glaringly obvious how much... Uh, the genetics played a role in um, in in selection pressure in selection up there. Yep. Uh, well, the the genetic variation that we observe, yeah, you know, in tropical breeds is in the order of ten times that much. So they, it's still not the most. Well, it, it is not the most terrible trait up there, particularly when we look at the data that's coming into breed plan. Yeah, you know, in the large progeny test type experiments that we've we've run in northern australia where the the data is pretty pristine we're able to get heritabilities for days to calving between you know 15 and 30 percent yeah and, but that's in under ideal conditions but that aside at the the level of heritability that we observe in industry they have vast capacity to to change that trait by selection just because of how much genetic variation there is uh, and that was really you know, yep. developed yep. upon so let's, by all of the let's just drill into, yeah let's drill into that a little bit so the the diversity the amount of um, variation you have um, means that you can go and find the top 10 percent and they're so different from the bottom 10 percent that it's worth doing it even with low heritability most definitely yep yep yeah and 
the goal up there is is very much to to change the genetics of your herd for reproduction, and it's those those bulls who are at that you know top end of genetic merit for for reproduction among Brahmins are, are vastly different animals to the ones who are, are at the other end of the spectrum. Um, so, is it, what and, about you know phenotypically? What are we talking about um, in for instance, uh, some of the fertility traits like um, age of puberty and stuff like that. What sort of phenotypic examples have you got that you've seen how much variation there is in Brahmins, for instance? Well, I, I think the most striking one is for, for lactation and estrus, which is, you know, that not not their first, not puberty, but the the next mating. So how they perform as wet wet first carvers um and we know that we've got bulls up there who's you know for which their progeny none of their female progeny were able to conceive in that second mating uh and we've got bulls whose female progeny all conceived from that second mating. And that's about as stark a contrast as you can get. So, how do you know which which is the? Why do you know that's genetic and not environment? Because you you test them in the same environment, and that's the result you get in the same environment in different places. Is that how you do it? Certainly, that we've got research properties you know, across a range of environments up there, uh, but central to it was finding a way to to record the trade accurately. Uh, and you know, one of the big developments up there was uh, work around ovarian scanning, which allowed us to go from you know, days to carving, which has a lot of noise in it, to a much more targeted trait, which is a much more accurate description of the underlying biology that's driving reproduction. And in, you know, that, those traits are in the, the range of you know, 40, 50, 60% heritable. So not only do we have much better description, we have much better capacity to, to drive genetic progress quickly. Uh, and it's really starting to change the breed. It's been you know, one of the really pleasing outcomes of that work, that the genetic trend for days to carving in Brahmins is, is starting to move in the right direction. And that, that equals money. So the other thing about uh, heritability, you know, when heritability is low, isn't that even more reason to use an EBV, not less? Because well, it, cer- it, it certainly means that what you can observe from a phenotype gives you, fu- you know, the proportion of that that is genetic is much lower. So, so you, it's very subtle. Your ability is to see it in the in an animal is is much lower. Yeah. So. Um, you know, when I, I spoke to you before we started this and I said, let's take the lid off heritability and pack up the box and put it back in again. Um, and it's very easy, f- you know, for someone who doesn't quite follow this to think that if something's heritability is 20 is twenty percent or 0.2, then why would you bother using genetics if you can only, if it only has such a small part of the variation? Yep, and, you know... The answer is because despite a low heritability, as long as we've got that genetic variation, we can achieve progress. And, you know, the great thing about genetic change is it's, you know, it's cumulative. Uh, And every year we make those improvements, um, they stay in your herd. And if you keep improving that improvement, you know, you're just 
getting better and better. Um, so I think the idea that low, that we can't achieve genetic progress for lowly heritable traits is certainly not true. Yeah, and if we look to to dairy, they're in ch- achieving pretty staggering genetic progress for traits that um, have much lower heritability than anything we work with in beef. You know, traits like mastitis and calf survival, you know, have, have very low heritabilities, but they're making genuine genetic progress for those. I suppose Rob Banks once said to me, um, you know, you should use the EBV in low heritable examples because we've calculated out all the environmental effects and all the variations, so the EBV's heritability should be one. Well, and that is that is a fact. The, the heritability of an EBV is one. Once we, you know, we remove, and that's the case for all EBVs, once that in, those environmental differences are moved, removed from what you observe in the paddock, um, what remains has a heritability equal to one. Yeah, so to say something like uh, fertility has a low heritability, isn't that, um, it's irrelevant really when you, it's just, it's just saying really that it's actually harder for you to come up with the the breeding value than it would be if it was highly heritable but um so for for someone who's perhaps not a quantitative um geneticist or doesn't understand it as well as you do um that making those assumptions that well the data's lowly heritable therefore i can't trust the ebv that's just not right is it it is not right and and you can you know the the best way to convince yourself that you have opportunity to to change things by selection is just to look at the range in ebvs that are, are presented and you know all breeds produce percentile tables that show you what the top and bottom ebvs for are for your breed and you'll see for days to carving we have plenty of range in those breeding values and that those you know that as you say is 100 percent heritable um and that if you select, yeah, at either end of that spectrum, you'll you'll push um, the genetics of your herd accordingly. So that that range is the key to to what can I achieve from selection. Yeah. Okay. So after saying all of that, though, there are you know I I particularly um, get annoyed with this topic because you hear consultants and advisors saying um, just use the fat figure because you'll get fertility with through that because the EBV doesn't work. So what do you say to that? Oh, you say they're wrong. You know, I I think we've <laughs> we've spent a lot of time and effort um, developing these breeding values, which you know the theory tells us and practice certainly shows us have the capacity to to drive genetic change if they're used properly. Um, the the notion of using a proxy trait. Uh, is is always a bit of a worry um and i certainly think in this stand what those genetic correlations are you know how those traits are related genetically we know it's not strong um and one thing we certainly know is that if you select for fatness for whatever reason um one thing you're definitely going to get is fatness whether you're going to get reproduction or not is is kind of neither here nor there. But you will certainly drive changes in fatness, and I think we're seeing some consequences in that direction at the moment. But as we kind of said at the start of this, if you really want to 
understand the genetics of reproduction, you need to, to record the trait and, and look at the EBVs. And the EBVs are absolutely reliable um, within the, the caveats of their, their accuracy. And accuracy is always, you know, how we describe how much confidence you have in those breeding values. And, and we've got uh, EBVs with accuracies that are well and truly useful for for selection so just for days to come. let's talk about accuracies for a minute because um yep. you know we do hear a little bit that you know um oh i'll give you an example and you can you can have have a go at it but i've heard before someone say uh the accuracy is 50 percent, therefore it's 50 50 why don't i just flip a coin right so that that is is certainly certainly not the case um any EBV with with any accuracy um, is the the best estimate we have based on all of the information we have on on an individual's genetic merit. Uh, the accuracy really describes the the potential for that to change as more information becomes available, um, and the higher the accuracy, the smaller that possible change becomes but the other thing that is is certainly true is that on average regardless of accuracy if we take you know a big enough sample we expect the change in ebvs to be zero um you know yeah. we we do not expect on average that animals shift dramatically and that does not mean that on an individual basis there can't be change in ebvs as more data becomes available um, but I think working with EBVs is certainly the best information that people have to make informed selection decisions. So statistically, an EBV is just as likely to go up or down. Exactly. Is, uh, and, uh, and the most, you know, the most likely thing on average is that it stays pretty much where it is. Yeah. And of course, that's not the case for any given individual but on average that is certainly the case and you know one great way to to get around any concerns about accuracy is to select multiple animals you know to, to use yeah that's right so if it's, if it's just as likely to go up or down if you use 10 bulls all 10 are just as likely to go up or down so you end up in the same place so i think accuracy really comes down to people's um, attitude to risk it's if you are making genetic progress in a breed then the younger animals are going to be the ones of the highest genetic merit but they are inherently lower accuracy uh, so it just is a, a question of whether people are willing to roll the dice on a, a lower accuracy animal um, to achieve the highest genetic gains or stick with something that's that's more highly accurate probably a bit older, probably slightly lower genetic merit, but more confidence in the progeny he'll produce. Uh, a, a common strategy for this is rather than buying individual bulls, to buy bulls in the syndicate. And and that then allows that potential change to, to average out um, yep. and increases the chances that the progeny you produce will go in exactly the direction that the EBVs tell you they will, kind of regardless of accuracy. So I suppose that's a good segue into sort of the confidence that people have in 
EBVs and you know we're seeing from time to time that they get a bit of bad press or get a bit of bad talk you know traditionally cattle breeders went along to the local show where the judge had been come in from outside or from overseas and he judges the animals and everyone would go away and try and replicate all the wonderful things he said about breeding animals and now we have um, computer systems and uh, algorithms and things that can collect that can analyze huge amounts of data and tell us um, you know quantitative genetic selection answers um, yep. Obviously, you're on the quantitative genetic selection side. How do you? How do we? How do we get more people in the industry to adopt the science of it and not lose faith in it and resort back to the the slower, more um, survival of the fittest method rather than the than the than the modern um, artificial selection method? Yep, I I think we've got to show people, you know, and I, I think. We really, we really can do that. One of the most effective demonstrations we've used in, in northern Australia is to, you know, put two pens of, of young females side by side and, you know, ask people what the differences between these two groups are. Uh, and, and we get a lot of answers back, um, but very rarely does anyone correctly observe is that, you know, this group of females... All carved, yeah, have carved twice in a row, or three times, or six times in a row, and this group has only carved once every two years. Uh, and it's our our ability to, you know, to observe in an individual, you know, some of these underlying biological capacities, which is really extremely limited. You cannot look at a female and gauge in any way what her capacity to produce calves every year is and you certainly can't look at at a bull and gauge from him what his daughter's capacity to be reproductive is so i think it's yeah and the only place you can get that information is from an ebv and as you say that's a a complex exercise we have to you know do a lot of careful recording and analyze it in a in the right way but once once that's done you have in front of you you know a basis for making a selection decision on something that you just cannot see in in an individual and certainly in a potential seller. Yeah, so, uh, and, you know, we see it in our head that um, sometimes you will see a trait that's not obvious at all that uh, the EBV draws your attention to it and then once you start looking you can see it. And so, yeah. uh, and and this is, you know, in, in the case in the north, you know, how can your mind really gather all the information that animals that are related to each other are getting in calf more often than another group of animals that are related to each other um, I, are, are, I think are not getting in calf? Person. How can you do that? Yep. You just can't physically no. do that without a you, computer. You cannot. No. Yeah, and if you're talking about a trait like, height yeah and we observed it over over the years that height is a highly heritable trait and you we see changes in height in yep. in breeds and animals over time it's right? reasonably easy to that's right pick you can that up subjectively that. yeah 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 but for a trait like reproduction 
there is nothing you can observe on the, the surface of that animal on a given day that's going to tell you anything about its reproductive capacity. Um, so let alone think, net, net feed intake or, you know, absolutely. Dare, dare but, I say, methane um, yield. Both very good examples. Um, and it is unfortunately true that a lot of the easy stuff is done. And to really make significant changes in profitability, we're going to have to be, be active in some of these much more complex areas. Uh, and it means recording is going to get more difficult. Um, but the payoff is going to be significant as well. Uh, so I think more complex traits, more sophisticated analyses, but also, you know, genuine opportunity to change things and change profitability. Now, Ag, Agburn and Tamarani have been doing a little bit of work over the years on collars. Um, yep. What do you think of what collars are going to provide for us in genetic, as a genetic selection tool? Yep. So, so the information we're getting from these collars is around uh, cyclicity in, in females. It's their... Yeah, it identifies when when females are cycling. Um, it's a tool that's been used in the dairy industry for some time, uh, and and quite effectively. Uh, we're now starting after all of the ultrasound work we've done, both in the north and and more recently in the south. We're starting to look for more more practical ways for for people on the ground to to identify aged puberty and and lactation and estrus in these collars are looking like they will give us a real opportunity to do that. Um, they generate you know, really fascinating data. Um, and by observing how animals are, are behaving and the traits that they're looking at, we get quite a, you know, it looking like an, an accurate description of, of when an animal's cycling. We did a bit of work in the Trans-Tasman project on, on age of puberty and showed that we've, we're certainly working with a trait that's that's more heritable than traditional descriptions of, of female reproduction in our evaluation. Um, and I think we will see the same thing for lactation and estrus when we're able to tackle that trait. Um, yeah. So I think higher heritability just means better opportunity to describe the trait in your evaluation. Oh, for us to, like, um, we're getting information good fertility information on the sisters of bulls absolutely so, rather than waiting for for a cow to get a calf on the ground before you really know you know what it one calf too it's only one record whereas this is um the collars are showing you know we've got one animal there that's uh at 12 and a half months had five cycles and and, oh, other, yeah. and other animals that are 14 months old that haven't had one yet so what does that tell yeah, us that, that's the power of that that tool and it it really gives us good information we are we still are in the validation phase for it in beef but i i'm confident that it will will be successful um and i think the you know the path for that data into into genetic evaluation for for breeders and for breeds yeah it should be pretty straightforward i think we can you know, get that into the system fairly quickly and and start using it. Yeah, and we, look, we can't have a little, we can't have a chat really in our days without talking a little bit about the environment. Um, and you know, I hope the National Party hurries up and makes a decision about 
you know, whether agriculture is going to be in or out of um, the responsibilities of reducing um, climate change and carbon in our atmosphere, but they they need to get on and do that. Uh, yep. But because um, I want to be, you know, I want to be involved and um, uh, and where and where does genetics sit in and what sort of tools can we use in genetics to help um, reduce a bit of the methane that's being emitted? Right. So this is, you know, the, the most current area of research that, you know, that we're, we're thinking about. We know that methane production and feed efficiency uh, are related to each other. If you, if you breed more efficient animals... Um, there is a corresponding improvement in methane production, uh, and that's that's encouraging. And I think there is, you know, there's always been merit in in aiming to achieve more more efficient animals. I think there's also opportunities around specifically recording methane, and you know, we're only now developing technologies that will allow us to do that accurately, uh, and. You know, collecting that data and analysing it is is in our our work plan at Agbo over the next five years. It's part of the, the Southern Multibreed Project, uh, which I think will make a great contribution in that area. And I know we will get some data from Tamani as well, which will be you know very useful in pinning down the genetics of these methane traits and our our ability to to apply selection to them. So uh, I saw some early stuff that was done by uh, Robert Hurd and I think Peter Fennessy from Dunedin. Yep. Um, that uh, methane, the amount of methane produced by individuals is heritable. Absolutely it is, and we, we know that's the case. So some um, animals that are, you know, a group of related animals can produce less methane for the same amount of productive output as another group of animals that are related Correct, yep. correct, and the, I kind of skipped that step in in the. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. I just um, yep. yeah, and and I saw a, I went to a uh, thing years ago that Peter Fennessy presented at where he showed that um, the genotype uh, they, they were doing um, molecular tests and the genotype of the gut. Um, biome was similar was was heritable as well as the animal yep. and the animal was able to influence which bacteria and things so both of them were interchangingly inheritable yeah which is which is fascinating yeah you know, i think it's an area that's gonna gonna get a lot more investigation over you know the next few years um uh but it, yeah it is still how we wield that in a selection program is is going to be you know something that that we will have to work on and and you know what the consequences of that may be will be fascinating as well uh it's yeah it is it's early days for that stuff but i think we as an industry are obliged to you know to put some resources in that direction uh i think it's an area that we probably we can certainly improve by selection and i i think we should and i do not doubt that there you know there are going to be profit signals that will tell us that that's a good direction to be going in so you know we've now spent over half an hour talking about mainly about one trait as um 
how many traits is Breedplane recording at the moment? Um, it differs for different breeds. I know in the in the Angus breed we've got twenty seven traits in our in our multi trait model, and you know additional traits that we're we're running to the side. So there's you know, in excess of, of thirty traits that that people can apply selection to. You know based on on breed plan EV. So range. you know the next question and the next uh, thing that, you know issue that I see in the industry is a little bit of. Um, fear around indexes and um and you know uh a trait like fertility is very important but as to how important it is to the other 27 traits uh it's very difficult for us for a individual like me to ascertain um it's really complex complex um you know how much value to put on fertility or mature size or growth or marbling or all the different things that build um a genetic financial solution Yep. Um, the indexes uh, uh, do that or attempt to do it. <laughs> um, what's the right word there? Um, I I think they do that. You know, they they are the certainly the the best tool we've got to understand the relative contributions to profitability of of all the traits in the evaluation. Um, and there have been some. Some really significant developments in inbreed object, which is the the system that allows us to develop breed plan selection indexes uh, in recent years, and I think the the real power of that tool to to breeders is is huge. Um, it takes information about you know your production system and the market markets that you are supplying so indexes are, are specific to 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 environments and markets um and calculates you know weightings economic weightings for traits based on that information i think it's it's important for people to understand that we never sit down in a room and say what weighting are we going to put on marbling uh yeah that does not happen All well, i, thought, of those it, I thought it was something you did after five yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no and i think a lot of people do think that and i think it's where a lot of yeah you know skepticism may come from you know how can how can these guys decide what what weighting these traits need um and they're absolutely right. We do not do that. Uh, it is based entirely on the the economics of a completely described enterprise, uh, and those weightings are delivered as as a product of that information. Uh, and they are certainly the the best opportunity people have to select on the basis of of profitability. And it has the added advantage of, of simplifying things a lot as well. You you don't have to concentrate on individual trait breeding values. You're you're able to apply your focus to to selecting for profitability. And I think it's you know one of the great tools at at breeders' disposal. Yeah. So I liken it a little bit. You know, profitability is a trait. You know, we know yep. it. Uh, different animals and it's heritable because different animals can supply you with a greater profit margin. Um, yep. And they're related, so um, I like it a little bit like to growth rate. I mean, we growth itself as a trait is actually a combination of hundreds and hundreds of different factors that 
make an animal grow faster or slower than another one. You know, it might be all sorts of things to do with their the size of their mouth, the, their ability to digest, their, you know, the ho- all sorts of things, their, um, reproduct- their uh, maturity pattern. But we don't work all those things out and build growth into an index. We just measure growth. Um, can't we just measure profit? I, I think we, we can and we do, you know, and that is the, the basis of, for, for selection indexes. Yeah. Um, and and you're, you're quite right in saying that an index is an EBV for profitability. And it, while what's going on under the bonnet is a bit different, it can certainly be interpreted the same way as all the other EBVs, but it's just one that encompasses all aspects of productivity and, and profitability for for a given production system um, and I, I think I think it's a key area that if we can improve the the adoption and the you know the use of of that tool you know we will really achieve great genetic progress for for our industry so matt i've got one more question before we move to your three m's which i can't wait to hear but um one more question that occasionally we get around the bull sale area and that is how do you know what my environment is if you don't know what my rainfall is do you get the gist of the question I think so. Um, when we talk about environment in genetic selection, yep. some people actually think that you calculate um, or predict what the environmental influences is by knowing their environment. But that's not how it works, is it? No, no, you, you're right. Um, so key to our analysis is understanding contemporary group. And, you know, contemporary group is just identifying animals who have been raised and run in the same group and therefore in the same environment up until the point any particular measurement is is collected. And by identifying those animals, uh, it doesn't, you know, the the particulars of, of what's happened in that environment aren't important. All that matters is we know that these animals have experienced the same environment, um, and and it's on that basis that we're able to remove environmental factors. Um, the other the other key to that is having genetic linkage between animals in different contemporary groups, and our our analysis relies on having genetics that are run in in different environments to allow us to to align. Uh, those you know, performance within those different contemporary groups. But it's really that accurate grouping of animals who have been treated the same that allows us to, to account for environmental differences. Um, and it really is an important part of the information that, that breeders submit to breed plan um, around contemporary groups. Uh, it's a, an important part of the evaluation. Okay, thanks. Uh, thank you very much, Matt. What's, what, uh, now let's get to your three M's. Um, what are the mistakes that you've made on the way through? Yep. I, I, I knew this was one was coming, and I'm still kind of battling with it, but I think the the best answer for this, particularly for, for me doing what I do, is that 
mistakes are, are our, our stock in trade. You know, we we make mistakes all the time. I think scientists in general are, you know, the first people to to acknowledge when they things haven't gone right and when things aren't understood as well as they would like. The important thing for us is to to know when that happens and to to react accordingly. And certainly, I think over the years, <coughs> improving our understanding, you know, is based on the mistakes we make and and how we how we respond to them. Very good. So masterpieces. Yeah, I think while my my involvement is has been around the peripheries of it i think you know as a as a scientist working at agbu um we are still immensely proud of what what we achieve in brood plan i think that is the the cornerstone of what we do here um and its evolution is is certainly one of the things that motivates me to to keep doing what i'm doing and i am hopeful we'll be able to keep yeah, you know, keep improving it and deliver that that product in in better and better forms. Yeah, well, um, I certainly believe in what you're doing, and um, and I believe that it's probably very important for our nation's beef industry that more and more people believe and respect what you're doing too, so that we can um, because for the more for more and more people to be collecting data it means for our business as well and for our competitors' businesses that we have more diversity, we have more animals with that we can select from um, and make the rate of genetic gain even faster. I think that's dead right, Tom, yep. So um, mentors through your life? There's been a few, and I, I said Drew's name would come up again, and he, he certainly was was an early one in, in my life. Um, when I came out of university, I started working, you know, with Drew, and I'm sure some people listening to this will be familiar with with Drew's work. He's most, you know, recently retired from a, a very senior position at CSIRO's Chiswick Chiswick Labs here here near Armidale. Um, but he was a, a meat scientist, a you know, an animal behavioralist uh, over over his his career, um, and he, you know, gave me my start in this industry and. You know, all of the the opportunities I had up until working working with Agbu, you know, was through my interaction with Drew, and he really was important in instilling that that respect for the scientific method in in what we did. You know, and I was my, mostly working as a technician in those days, but you know, he a lot of the reason I've ended up where I am was because of Drew's influence on on my career, uh, and I, I absolutely have to include. David Johnson in any any discussion of people who've had a big influence on on me. He's he's supervised my my PhD studies. He he's my boss these days, and I think working with him has been one of the the real highlights of my career. Just um, well, thanks for that. But just on that, um, you know, there's a boom going on at the moment in um, career paths into agriculture. Um, would you like to give a little plug on your career or your pathway and to try and just tell people how try and encourage people to perhaps um you know the options that they have and 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 how much you've got from being involved in genomic science we need more people don't we 
We absolutely do. Um, and it, you know, every four years we, we're lucky enough to, to attend, you know, an international meeting of animal, animal geneticists. Um, and in the last few conferences, the thing that really stood out to me is that everyone is looking, looking for good people. There seems to be a real need for people willing to pursue this, this sort of this sort of work um and it is it's a it's a long road to to qualification and and kind of being involved as as a scientist in these areas but you know every step along that road i think is is quite quite rewarding um but the you know the lack of people in this area is something that that really is standing out to me and we we need them in australia and we we need to work to attract them and we need to work to motivate people you know considering direction in their life you know into this area uh and i think certainly from from my experience it's it's one that provides an extremely rewarding life yeah and you have some lightning bolt moments don't you you know when you're analyzing data and you see something that someone perhaps hasn't seen before yep and you know for me a lot of those really great moments occur when we're talking to each other, it's that that interaction between scientists and researchers that I think is is a highlight of of this sort of work, and I think that's where the really great ideas uh, are developed. Um, and so, yeah, in in COVID land with nothing but Zoom, it's been a really frustrating part of it that those discussions don't happen as open as often or as as freely as they they did in the past and i think we're all looking forward to to getting back to that that level of interaction because it's something we we certainly need for this this work to to happen at its best well thank you very much matt for being on the rorag podcast and um you know continue on doing what you're doing you're doing a great service for the beef industry and making sure that you know these things are not only just studied and researched, but they're also sold well. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Tom. Thanks a lot for inviting me. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.